podcast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS Missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. <coughs> Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Any of you heard that proverb? If you've heard that proverb, then you also know that it's a lie. Names do hurt. And I know that from personal experience. I don't often talk about my childhood and what it was like, but I remember very clearly being called almost every name under the sun. We were talking with Claire and Lindsay in the car this morning about all the different schools that I went to. One of the things that happens when you're constantly moving from school to school is that you are always the new kid. And if anybody's going to get picked on in a class, it's the guy who's brand new. So I resonate with the Bare Naked Ladies old song from when I was in high school, grade nine, where they sang about calling me chicken legs and calling me four eyes, calling me fatso, calling me buckwheat. Well, I was never called buckwheat, but the rest of them resonate with me. And that is James' point to us today, here in the middle of his epistle where he focuses not on the things that we do as being the primary problem with the human race, but simply the things we say. The role that our tongue, or I might add in our digital age, our fingers, especially our texting fingers, play in society. James grew up as a Jew. And as a Jew, he had been taught over and over again that sin was the things that you do, specifically not going through the right rituals, not being in temple on the right festivals, and not keeping the Ten Commandments. But after he saw his elder brother raised from the dead, he realized that the real problem with you and with me is not so much what we did, but how we use this incredibly strong and powerful muscle that's located between our upper and our lower teeth. Sin, James realized, was what we say. How we treat each other and the words we think we are saying about God. So James, in his third chapter of his letter, starts with this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's kind of a a tough verse to preach on when you're a pastor, because really this should be the point in the service where I say, uh, go about your business, and I'm just going to go and reflect on this for a moment and confess my sins before the altar. Because I'm the teacher here. And what James is saying is before I even worry about anything you're using your tongues for, I ought to be thinking about mine. And is what's coming out of my mouth what is good and right and true. Each article of the formula of Concord, the last great confession of the Lutheran church, begins with the words, we believe, teach, and confess. And that's what a pastor does. Takes what we all believe and teaches it and confesses it even outside these walls. And James says, if there is any profession in the world that is dangerous, It's this one. In fact, the great preacher 
of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, says it's highly unlikely that many pastors will be saved. I hope he's wrong, but he gets it from James. Paul agrees with James. First Corinthians chapter three writes, according to the grace of God given to me as an apostle, as a teacher, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. I taught the first confirmation class and now some other pastor is coming and they're teaching on top of that. And Paul says, let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the last great day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Yay! And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Watch what you teach, James and Paul and Jesus. And all the prophets and apostles say to you and to me. And it's the reason why if you go to a Christian cemetery, pastors are always buried. So they're facing their parishioners. So that on the day of the resurrection, as all the people rise to see Jesus, we will rise to see the fruits, we hope, of what we've taught. Then James goes on and says, now, why is it so important that your pastors teach well? Well, it has to do with you, too. This isn't just about teachers. James says, we all stumble in many ways. Let's be honest here, James says. I'm an apostle, half-brother of our Lord and Savior. You are all Christians to whom I am writing, and all of us have found ourselves stumbling. He says, look, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Let's not worry about the things you do. Can you say that every word that has ever come out of your mouth has been good and just and right and true? Has it been helpful to the people around you or has it served to cut them down? Has it worked to build up somebody who was maybe that bruised reed or that dimly burning wick that Isaiah talks about? Or was it trying to snuff them out or break them off. James says, look, we, we put bits into the mouths of horses because just putting something into their mouth can direct the entire beast. Look at the ships also, James says. Little small rudder on those giant, huge vessels that go up and down the St. Lawrence and back and forth across the ocean. That little rudder can direct that entire ship so also the tongue, James says, is so small. It's not that big. Yet look at what is able to do and undo. Walter Wanger Jr. was a pastor in Evansville, Indiana, first ever speaker for the first ever national youth event in Edmonton, Alberta that I ever went to. And he talked about his little church, which is not unlike ours in Evansville, now, this woman showed up for the first time ever for worship, and she didn't fit in because it was her first time to church. She didn't know what to wear. 
She didn't know how to behave. She didn't know where to sit. And every single person in that church let her know. Dressed like Saturday night for Sunday morning, Pastor Wangard's never forgotten hearing those words from an elderly couple seated near the front of the congregation. How could she wear that to church? Doesn't she know any better? And then her son, who, of course, also did not know, unlike Nathan and our other kids, how to behave in church, was running up and down the aisles during the sermon, grabbing onto the pastor's robe, yanking his tassels like it was maybe going to make a bell ring. And there were the words coming out of the mouths of these people who had come there to worship their Lord and God and Savior. Doesn't she know what to do with her son? Don't bring him to church if he doesn't know how to behave in church. It was just their tongues. They didn't hit her. They didn't, like, take her purse away. They were just talking. But look what the tongue can do. Every kind of beast and bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed, says James. You can domesticate it. Zebras, giraffes, the challenge, someday we'll do it. We'll domesticate the zebra. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Well, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty definitive. James doesn't say we need to work harder on our speech. We need to get our tongue a little bit more under control. James says we, we've got a fundamental problem, and we can't fix it. And I can't help but wonder if James is thinking about himself. See, because as I've mentioned before, James is Jesus' half-brother. Jesus had younger brothers and sisters. They get mentioned in the Gospels. One of the places where they show up is in John chapter 7. It's one of those times when, when the brothers come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, are you going to Jerusalem? Are you going out for the festival? Why don't you just show up there and tell everybody that you're the Christ? You're the Messiah. Tongues wagging with words that they don't even understand. And as John records in his gospel, after this, he says not even his brothers believed in him. How do we know? Because we heard the words coming out of their mouths. There's only one word that can save us from a tongue that is restlessly evil and full of deadly poison. And it's the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. See, because his words are always good and right and perfect. They're always the right words for the situation, even if they're the words we may not necessarily want to hear. They're always the words that come along and bring good news, even if the first thing they have to do is bring the bad news that our tongues need to be stilled by someone other than us. But if the gospel is lost, who can save us from our tongues? So James says, look at what else your tongue does. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. We use it to proclaim the gospel. We use it to share the good news. We use it to tell other people that there is a rescue from evil 
and it is found in God's one and only Son. It is seen at his cross. It is gloriously announced in his empty tomb and his resurrection appearances. But that same tongue that would share those good news with others can be used to curse people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, and James is he's almost saying this with wonder. He's almost like, I, I can hardly believe that this happens. With the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, he says, these things ought not to be. Doesn't mean that they aren't true. Clearly they are. James has seen it in his own life. He has been going to worship for years, believing that he was offering praise and worship to God. And yet there he was looking at God there in the flesh, right in front of him and mocking him. Why don't you go to Jerusalem, Jesus? Tell them you're the Messiah. And I have to believe, as James writes these words, that's what he's thinking about, that this ought not to be so. And he remembers the things that Jesus did. And probably one of my favorite parables in the whole gospel from Luke chapter 18. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And I might add, although it's not there in the text, mostly with their tongues, mostly with their words. Two men went up to the temple to pray. See, it's a word thing. One, a Pharisee. One of the good guys, righteous, religious, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, because he's not going to associate with the, the unreligious people, the evil people, the ones who are going to hell, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get to the church. But the tax collector standing far off, which makes me think he was a Lutheran, because he sits at the back, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other. But all they did was speak. It wasn't like they were out doing great works of mercy. They weren't trying to help their neighborhood. They weren't community organizers. All they did was let their tongue slip a few words. But it's all about what their tongue said. The Pharisee could not see the evil that his own tongue could be capable of. And he just lets it rip. Hey, God, look at how great I am. I fast, I tithe, I, 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 I. Tax collector only says me, and he invokes God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Only you can fix my tongue. 
only you can deliver me from this bondage that this little tiny rudder, this little tiny bit finds itself in and that flows out to my fingers on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and all the different ways we have created that we can use words to hurt and destroy instead of to share the good news of Christ and to bring peace and to bring hope and to bring the promise of rescue in Jesus Christ. So James finishes off by saying, look, <coughs> let's be honest with each other. Can a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives? This morning in Sunday school, in adult instruction, we talked about the fact, can, can two humans give birth to a mouse or a giraffe? Could do giraffes give birth to a donkey? No, like comes from like. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What on earth is James talking about here? Why does he think this is the final definitive conclusion of his argument? Why does he think this is the, the big QED, quad ero demonstrandum? This is the final bit of information I want to share. Well, it's because once more, he's channeling his half-brother. Beware of false prophets, Jesus said, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like one thing, they're actually another. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. By what kind of water comes forth from the source? Jesus, of course, called himself the living water. We're salt water. You know what happens when you drink salt water? You dehydrate and you die. It's beautiful to look at the salt water. It's nice to float in if it's really salty, like the Dead Sea, but it cannot keep you alive. You can sit there by the seashore looking out at all that water and dry out and die. Jesus says, I am the living water. Living water is water that's flowing, right? Because flowing water stays pure. It stays fresh. Stagnant water sits there and grows all sorts of stuff that we don't want to drink in. Jesus says, I am the living water. And I will take your salt water, your stagnant pond, and make it fresh. I will pour myself into you. You are dead trees, but I will make you living trees that bear good fruit. My word will come and rest in your ears and come into your mouth and go out on your tongue, and it will be completely different than what you would say or what you would type. Jesus also calls himself the true vine. I am the real vine. All the other vines grow sour grapes. But when you graft you into my vine, then the fruit that comes is good juicy and sweet and good to eat. 
When Jesus preached his very first sermon, when he used his tongue for the first time in his hometown, the people spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out from his mouth. He's using his tongue in a way we've never heard anyone use their tongue before. What do you think it means when in the Gospels people say he spoke as one who had authority and not as our scribes? It's what his tongue was doing. Unlike any tongue in human history, this was the tongue that was speaking not words that kill, but words that give life. And not just life here, but life eternally. In the presence of the one who is the true vine, who is the living water. Even from the cross, when any one of us would have been cursing the people that had nailed us there bitterly and saying, you're going to get yours, just you wait. Jesus instead says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And every single last word, as his lungs are being crushed on that cross, is used not to hurt or destroy or kill, but to bring good news to the people who are there. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. You know, everything I needed to know, I learned from my grandparents' cottage walls. I really miss the fact that they're not there anymore. But as I was growing up and in the summer would spend weeks out at the, my grandparents' cottage, I would read all the things that were on the plaques that they had bought as souvenirs from Maine, Newfoundland, British Columbia, wherever they traveled. One of those plaques said this. Keep watch on all the words you say to keep them soft and sweet. You never know from day to day which ones you'll have to eat. And the good news of Jesus Christ comes to us who feel like we are wrangling tongues that are always slapping around like the Kraken's tentacles. And Jesus comes and speaks his word from his tongue instead. Who can save us from these little muscles of death? Paul might have said in Romans chapter 7. And the answer, of course, is thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, who is always speaking soft, fresh, life-giving words to us. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And while the dark words that we have said this week or the week before or typed out and wish we hadn't, the words that have cut people's hearts will, praise be to God, eventually be forgotten. Jesus promises that heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. So at least there is one tongue that has spoken whose words will remain forever. And praise be to God, it's not ours. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless your week.